You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Well, that happened. And by that, I mean the bare minimum happened. And by that, I mean the Oscars gave out awards a week ago. Whatever they paid for those producers, they paid way too much. I feel like a film student they hired off a Craigslist could have done a better job. I'm not even sure what they did that required producing other than setting up some seating and having actors awkwardly talk about a field they've worked in for decades on most of their parts that they didn't even really seem to know anything about. The producers hyped the ceremony being like a movie, but I'm pretty sure they only said that so they'd be allowed to take the masks off because if it was a live event in Los Angeles, A, we're not allowed to have those and B, they'd be required to wear masks the whole time. Basically, I'm pretty sure they just found a loophole. The producers likely knew that this was going to be a shit year for the ratings no matter what they did, but they could have at least done something that resembled trying. I liked the stories about the nominees and their forays into the film industry, but telling people things at an award show for a medium that's technically supposed to be showing you, not telling you, made the trope fall pretty flat. And of course, probably... Not probably, definitely the most talked about thing from last week's ceremony was the whole Chadwick Boseman of it all. No matter what time that award would have taken place during that award show, it was going to be a bummer. The cherry on top of that crappy, crappy ceremony was that they capitalized or they tried to capitalize off of a man's untimely demise and then had it backfire so spectacularly that it honestly, it just kind of bummed me out. Normally, I would think that something like that was funny, like, ah, ha, ha, that person didn't win an award. But they literally built the entire show around Chadwick winning. And instead, the poor sleepy guy in Wales had to like apologize basically for, you know, the best performance of his career. I kind of feel bad for him, but I'm also bummed Chadwick Boseman didn't win because I really wanted to see him win an Oscar, but we can't always get what we want. All in all, it was a big dud. All of the boring bits, none of the razzle-dazzle. Exactly the opposite of what they promised. Hopefully next year they'll get a group of people who know what they're doing and... I guess better luck next time, guys. I didn't see any movies in a movie theater this week as I am recording this from my hometown. I hopefully this more or less sounds like the other episodes because I'm doing this from my childhood bedroom. There's way less street sound, so that's nice. But I'm basically I've attached a microphone to my childhood dresser and I'm hoping for the best. Anyway, you know the drill by now. New month, new theme. This month, we're jumping 
way out of my comfort zone and spending a month on a very prevalent part of the film industry. This month, we're covering the history of animation and three of the biggest studios that we haven't discussed yet that have had some of the biggest impacts on the art of animation. We've already talked about Disney. We'll talk about Disney today, but we're not going to talk about Disney anymore after today. There are five weeks in May also, but I'm taking off the last one in the hopes of getting a little bit further ahead on the scripts than I currently am. And also, I really don't want to travel with this again. It's such a pain in the ass. (laughs) So this week, we're covering a little bit of everything with a brief history of the animated film. Like the other brief history episodes, we won't be focusing a ton on specific people or films. This is to lay down a baseline for future episodes like my first three were. There are many parts and people of the animation industry we aren't even going to get to today. You might not even hear their names today, but we definitely will down the line. There are going to be many, many After all of the research I've done in this past month, there will be several different months down the line, probably at least one each year, where we focus on some animation pioneers. Animation is arguably the earliest form of the motion picture, but is in the present one of the least understood and least well-regarded, typically thrown to the wayside as a form of children's entertainment. In reality, this is anything but the case. This week, we're doing a speed run on the origins of animation from ancient Egyptian burial murals all the way up to computer animation. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. The foundations of the art of animation can be traced back to ancient times, with examples appearing in cave paintings, pottery, and burial tombs, though these early examples are probably not how you classify animation today. These depictions were series of sequential drawings, what a modern eye might classify as a comic strip. A very boring comic strip, mind you. Not a lot of narrative stuff happening, but a comic strip nonetheless. These sequential images are, however, the earliest example of showing movement through drawing. In the caves of Paleolithic Man, the paintings of animals are sometimes depicted with multiple legs and superimposed positions that could be interpreted as an animal running. Some historians believe that the flicker of firelight gave the paintings the illusion of movement. The earliest description of animation appears in the poem De Rerum Natura by ancient Roman philosopher Lucretius in the 1st century BCE. In it, Lucretius describes what would eventually become the basic principles of animation and frankly filmmaking as a whole. Quote, when the first image perishes and a second is then produced in another position, the former seems to have altered its pose. Of course, this must be supposed to take place very swiftly. Lucretius was attempting to describe dream images, however, not real-life moving images. 
The closest version of entertainment to animation as we know it today starts with shadow plays or shadow puppetry. Shadow play likely developed in ancient China and or India, and they used flat cutout puppets between a source of light and a translucent screen, just like you did in elementary school. The cutout shapes of the puppets sometimes included translucent color or other types of detailing as the medium advanced. Various effects could be achieved by moving both the puppets and the light source. The more talented puppeteer could give it the illusion of movement. This storytelling medium is not only a predecessor to animation, but to cinema as a whole. In the mid-1600s, Magic Lanterns, another predecessor to all motion pictures, became popular. As a reminder, a magic lantern is essentially the earliest form of a film projector. In the early days, painted glass slides were placed in front of a light source and blown up using a concave mirror and glass. By the 1700s, others had figured out how to add motion to those painted slides as well. These innovations would lead to something called the phantasmagoria, a form of horror theater, and the earliest form of the horror movie and genre. These images could be projected on smoke as well as screens and were popular from 1790 through about the 1830s. Other techniques came out of these shows as well that would be crucial not only to animation, but filmmaking as well. For example, the lanterns for the shows were specially developed to produce convincing ghost experiences. The lanterns were typically handheld to move the projection across the screen, which was usually a transparent screen, which the lanternist operated hidden in the dark. Shadow puppets were also implemented in these shows. The technical foundations of what we'd consider to be modern animation and filmmaking likely started in 1824 when British scientist Peter Roger published a paper for the British Royal Society entitled The Persistence of Vision with Regard to Moving Objects. This theory is the foundation of all motion pictures as it explains how the human eye can interpret a series of individual images as one smooth moving picture. In the mid-1800s, animation and movement became possible with toys like the Thaumatrope, which was a disc with an image on either side that merged together when spun on strings, the Penachistoscope, and Daedalum, later the Zoetrope, which were spinning discs or cylinders in which a strip of sequential images could be viewed was another popular toy. Using these, a series of separate images would blend together when spun and give the illusion of movement so long as the viewer kept their eyes on a fixed point. These and several other viewing devices were popular toys over the next 50 years or so until the birth of cinema as we know it occurred in the 1880s and the possibility to create a moving image on screen occurred with flexible film stock and faster cameras in the later part of the 19th century. For more on that in detail and to hear a nervous me making her first podcast episode underneath a very hot blanket in 95 degree weather, you can learn all about the birth of cinema in my inaugural episode, A Brief History. History of Film Part 1. By the early 1900s, cinema was a booming industry. It was also in its infancy, which allowed a lot of opportunity for trial and error. Every country with even the tiniest cinematic community was fervently trying to further along the art form, which makes it difficult to accurately nail down exactly where and whom invented animation one potential person is French inventor Charles-Emile Reynaud, who invented the praxinoscope. 
which is basically a projector and a zoetrope mixed together, and showed the first moving figures on image strips in this projected manner. We can also nail down the person who discovered stop motion as he was an employee of Thomas Edison's named Alfred Clark, who figured out the technique in 1895. The discovery was made while making the film The Execution of Mary Stewart, when Clark realized he could stop the camera, editing didn't quite exist yet, remove the actress playing Mary from the shot, replace her with a dummy, restart the camera, behead that dummy. When played back, it looked like one continuous shot. Later, George Millier would discover the same trick and the magician-turned-filmmaker would use it frequently in his films. Stop motion has remained an animation style to this day, but is not seen so often because it is crazy time-consuming and therefore more expensive than other animation styles that came to prominence later. If you don't know, stop motion is the process describing models that are set up, then moved frame by frame, a picture being taken in between each movement. It's basically pose your model, take a picture, move it a little bit more, take a picture, etc. Stop motion is the oldest form of animation and is popular to this day thanks to directors like Tim Burton and Nick Park. Modern popular examples include Coraline, Wallace and Gromit, and Kubo and the Two Strings. From here on out, cinema and animation's histories finally split. In 1899, the first widely considered animated film was made by Arthur Melbourne Cooper in St. Albans, England. In his film, Matches and Appeal, the stop-motion short featuring a matchstick man riding on a chalkboard trying to get the British public to send matches to British soldiers fighting the Boer War in South Africa at the time. A year later in 1900, J. Stuart Blackton, a British-American filmmaker employed at Vita Studios in New York, began implementing drawn animations into his live-action films. His first, The Enchanted Drawing, is a marriage of live-action, stop-motion, and hand-drawn animation. Six years later, Blackton made what is believed by historians to be the first animated film to be drawn on standard film stock. The film was called Humorous Phases of Funny Faces and features a sequence made with blackboard drawings of two faces changing expressions and some billowing cigar smoke, as well as two sequences that feature cut-out animation with a similar look for more fluid motion. In 1908, Parisian filmmaker Emile Quartet released Phantasmagory, the first animated film using what came to be known as traditional animation. The film featured over 700 drawings and had a runtime of about two minutes. Emile moved to New Jersey in 1912 and taught his animation style to U.S. filmmakers. The animation style that came out of this is known as cell animation, now more commonly known as 2D or paper animation. This process of animation would stay in vogue for nearly 100 years until CGI animation slowly but surely took over. Cell animation typically starts out with an animator creating drawings on a light box, which is a translucent surface illuminated from behind, used for situations where a shape laid upon the surface needs to be seen with high contrast. So basically so the animator can look through the top drawing to see the progression of images and therefore movement through multiple sheets of paper. The process gets its name 
name from the process of the drawings being transferred to cell plastic sheets, which were then painted by hand and then filmed frame by frame on top of a background painting. This was done so every part of the frame would not need to be painted every single time. Today, of course, if when 2D animation is done, this is achieved using scanners and computer programs instead of a manual light box. Another major innovator from around this time was Windsor McKay. Best known for his cartoon strip character Little Nemo, McKay took his drawing skills to filmmaking. McKay was already known as a very talented animator, and his detailed images were on full display in his first short, Gertie the Dinosaur, in 1914. McKay was a touch of an overachiever and also dabbled in vaudeville and would use his animations in his vaudeville acts. McKay would stand next to the screen and speak to Gertie, who would respond with a series of gestures. At the end of his set, McKay would walk behind the projection screen, seamlessly being replaced with a pre-recorded image of himself entering the screen, getting on the cartoon dinosaur's back, and riding out of frame. McKay's work inspired scores of future animators. In 1915, the art editor for the American magazine Popular Science, Max Flesher, used his two passions, cartooning and science, to create a machine that could capture movement and make animated films. He called his machine the rotoscope. Rotoscoping is actually still used to this day, and not just in animation. Rotoscoping is the process of taking a live-action film of a subject, projecting it, then tracing or drawing over it. This allowed natural, smoother movements between each frame of animation and eliminates any guesswork when it came down to approximating movement. Rotoscoping is, like I said, still used to this day, but is much fancier and involves motion capture computer sensors. This will not be the last time you hear about Max Flesher and his brother Dave. Up until this point, much of animation had been mostly done by artists either working solo or in a department of a motion picture company. That was about to change. Bari Studio was the first, or one of the first, depending on the source, production company that was founded with the intention to create solely animated films by Raul Barret in 1913. In addition, Barret also made several technical contributions to the fields. His success was short-lived, as in 1916, William Randolph Hearst lured most of Barret's people away from the company to work for him. Barret had a little bit of success with his Mutt and Jeff series after this, but a slew of financial scandals at the studio he later worked for pretty much ended his animation career. The other studio gunning for the mantle of first animation production studio is John Bray Studios, which was founded by John Bray in 1914. One of Bray's employees, Earl Hurd, patented their cell animation process, and Bray established the use of the assembly line method of animation, which led to the first animated series. 
Aforementioned Max Flesher was an employee of John Bray Studios while he had made several of his animation breakthroughs. Max and his brother Dave would eventually found Out of the Inkwell films, named after his most popular series he'd made at John Bray. Later, it would be renamed Flesher Studios. The brothers worked independently for several years and created characters you more casual cinephiles have probably heard of. For example, Betty Boop, Popeye, and the first animated Superman cartoons, all Flesher. Flesher Studios was at the height of their career in the mid-1920s, going toe-to-toe with Disney, which had also rose to prominence in the 1920s. The Flesher brothers prided themselves on making coarser, more risque cartoons with darker humors and themes than Disney was putting out. Their animators also had significantly more freedom than what the animators did over at Disney. In late 1927, sound came to cinema, allowing new capabilities to not just live action films, but to animated ones as well. Max and Dave were at the forefront of this, making 19 sound cartoons in the early days, as their distributor Paramount Pictures was one of the studios at the forefront of the technological development of sound. Paramount Pictures, after the Wall Street crash, was not a great place to be, and as a result, the Fleshers struggled to receive stable funding from them. Paramount also refused to invest in color film stock capabilities, and this allowed Disney, whom took on the Technicolor film cost and risk, to pull ahead. The brothers would be playing catch up to Disney for the rest of their careers, and a feud between Max and Dave led to their removal from the company in 1941. Their company was renamed Famous Studios by Paramount, which only lasted a few years beyond the removal of the Fleshers. The most popular cartoon series during the silent era was Australian-American film producer Pat Sullivan's Felix the Cat, which was likely created by his employee Otto Mesmer. Felix the Cat became hugely successful throughout the 1920s. The studio came into trouble during the advent of sound cartoons in the early 1930s when the popularity of Walt Disney's Mickey Mouse was rising above Sullivan's Felix. Sullivan tried to adapt Felix by creating Felix sound cartoons, but they failed to please audiences and Sullivan closed the studio in 1930. He died three years later due to health problems related to alcoholism. Disney is the juggernaut in this genre, and one that we'll more than likely mention throughout the remainder of this month. I've written those scripts already. They come up quite a bit. But in the interest of not repeating myself too much, I'm going to limit their contributions quite a bit. Walt Disney is definitely the godfather of modern animation. And if you want more about his early days, check out my November 8th, 2020 episode of this podcast. Or if you just want to know about Disney in general, the whole month of November was about Disney. A quick refresher for those of you who did listen and possibly don't remember, it was like six months ago, Walt Disney and his early animating partner of iWorks moved to LA from Missouri after receiving funding 
to make their already popular Alice cartoons and later Oswald the Lucky Rabbit for Universal Pictures. After a fight, Walt was taken off the Oswald project, losing the rights to his character. In 1928, Disney and iWorks, who stuck with him, created the most iconic character in the history of animation and also one of the most popular figures of American culture to replace Oswald, Mickey Mouse. After years of taking two steps forward and one step back and eventually losing Ub to one of their company's biggest competitors, Pat Powers, Walt and his brother would eventually found Disney Brothers, which today is known as Walt Disney Studios. And the rest, as they say, is history. Some of the other popular cartoons from this era came from Hugh Harmon and Rudolph Ising, an American animation team, whom created the character Bosco, a human kind of dog-like looking kind of dude. Kind of looks like Goofy with the face of a monkey with talking pictures in mind. Later, they signed with Leon Schlesinger Productions and would eventually start the Looney Tunes series for Warner Brothers in 1930 to compete with Disney's lineup. Bosco would be the star of 39 Warner Brothers cartoons before Harmon and Ising took Bosco to MGM after leaving Warner Brothers. After two MGM cartoons, the character received a dramatic makeover that was not really liked very much by audiences. Bosco's career would end in 1938. Up until this point, animated cartoons were seen much as a novelty as live-action films were before the shift to feature-length ones. This was about to change in the 1930s. Animation was responsible for color cinema taking off as a medium, as color seemed especially useful for the animated medium. Silly Symphonies, the cartoon series that put Walt Disney on the map, was 90% as successful as it was because of its usage of sound on film and color technologies. Disney originally had an exclusive deal for the use of Technicolor's full color technique in animated films. He did wait a while, though, before he produced the Mickey Mouse series in color, so the Silly Symphonies would have a special place in audiences' hearts. After the exclusivity deal lapsed in September 1935, full-color animation soon became the industry standard, much faster than it was for live-action film. Newly solo from his longtime collaborator Walt Disney, Ub Iwerks came to the forefront of technological animation advancements at this time, including the invention of the multiplane camera in 1933. Presidents for this technology had existed before this, including a similar camera made by Lotti Rainier and Berthold Bartosz for their animated short film Lee Lady. I did my best to pronounce that. I'm not good at French. The Fleshers also had their own version of this, known as the Stereo Opticon process, that was relatively similar but involved three dimensional sets that were used for the backgrounds and were built on a large turntable. Cells were placed within the movable set and the characters would appear to move against this 3D environment. A multi-plane camera creates the impression of depth using stacked animation cells. 
How to explain how this looks to someone who's never seen one. The camera is parallel to the ground and several feet up into the air. I've seen the one at Walt Disney Studios in person, and I'm guessing it's like maybe the camera's maybe like eight feet off the ground. I'm shortish, so everything feels tall to me. Then artwork layers are stacked to allow other layers to build a scene. Things that are in the foreground are closer to the camera, and of course the background is all the way on the bottom. The movements of a character are calculated and drawn onto the transparent sheets and are photographed frame by frame, with the result being an illusion of depth and movement by having several layers of artwork moving at different speeds. The multiplane effect is sometimes referred to as the parallax process. The one Disney would eventually use was developed by William Garrity. They tested it out on one short before using it extensively on Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, which released in 1937. While often cited as the first feature-length animated film, which isn't technically true, it's the first feature-length hand-drawn feature film. Snow White and the Seven Dwarves changed the way people saw animation as an art form. It could be as long as a real movie, quote unquote. This wasn't an overnight success, however, as sound had been 10 years earlier, and the following animated feature films released by Disney and the feature films put up by the Flesher Brothers and lots of other studios were not nearly as successful as Snow White had been. World War II and the inability to have films play in Europe was a major part of this. Disney would not have a Another hit until Cinderella 13 years after the release of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. What's new? What's new? Good question. That's me, you got the right fellow. What's new? What adventure have you bumped into? Wouldn't you like to know? <laughs> you are a man of stature in your hat, you're five foot three. Be a man of vision. Outside of the U.S., American cell animated films dominated the worldwide consumption of theatrical animated releases since the 1920s, especially the Disney cartoons. Studios from other countries could hardly compete with the American productions. Relatively, many animation producers outside of the U.S. chose to work with their with other techniques than the traditional or cell animation, such as puppet animation or cutout animation. However, several countries, most notably Russia, China, and Japan, developed their own relatively large traditional animation industries. Russia's largest animation studio, founded in 1936, employed up to 700 skilled workers and during the Soviet period produced 20 films per year on average. In the U.S., the 1940s was actually the golden age of American animation, despite the fact that they weren't really doing that great financially. From an audience viewpoint, however, it was a great time to go watch an animated movie, but cracks were beginning to show behind the scenes. While Walt Disney expected blind loyalty from his employees, the less than agreeable conditions he created at his studio led to several worker strikes, including the animators. After one such strike in 1941, a large team of Walt's animators split off and made their own production company, UPA, or United Productions of America. The company originally worked for the government, but inspired by the Russian styles of animation, they created their own iconic character, Mr. Magoo. The distinctive style was influential and even affected the big studios, including Warner Brothers and Disney's animation styles. 
Apart from freedom in artistic expression, UPA proved that cheaper animation styles could be appreciated as much as, or even more than, the expensive lavish styles. Animation had an easier time adapting to the threat that television posed in the early days than their live-action counterparts. By the end of the 1950s, in fact, there were several studios that specialized just in animated television programs. This furthered the practice of making animation for fast and cheap, but now it would be for television consumption. Critics weren't thrilled, noticing the degradation in quality from their cinematic counterparts. The heads of the studios didn't care what the critics thought, so long as they had viewers because viewers equaled money. These cartoons would eventually become known as Saturday Morning Cartoons, which was an American pastime for decades, but declined in the 1990s. I don't know this for certain, but based on the fact that massive production companies like Disney, which had made animated films primarily for children, coupled with the television programming that came out of this era, led to animation being seen as an inferior art form to, say, the live action film. It kind of seems like a perfect storm to sort of get them, you know, at the kids' table. No pun intended. Animated feature films, at least in the States, struggled through this time to make back their astronomical costs for the next several decades. Most of them wouldn't post a financial gain until their re-releases. For some studios, like UPA, this meant death. The studio put out its last new feature film in 1959. In Japan, a new art form rose in popularity known as anime. Anime was developed with limited animation techniques that put more emphasis on the aesthetics of a scene rather than on the movement, especially when comparing it to U.S. animation. It also applies a relatively cinematic approach with zooming, panning, complex dynamic shots with more attention paid to the backgrounds. All of these are characteristics of anime films. Anime reached the U.S. in the 1960s on television and increased in popularity over the decades. To this day, anime is still very popular worldwide. Also in the 1960s and into the 1970s came the rise of counterculture animation. It was a time of great change in the United States and frankly the world as a whole. And American animator Ralph Bakshi believed that, quote, grown men sitting in cubicles drawing butterflies floating over a field of flowers while American planes are dropping bombs in Vietnam and kids are marching in the streets is ludicrous. So he made Fritz the Cat in 1972, based on Robert Crumb's comics of the same name. Fritz the Cat was the first animated film to be X-rated or NC-17 as it is known today. The X rating was actually used to promote the film and it became the highest grossing independent animated film of all time. Bakshi is also responsible for those animated Lord of the Rings films for better or worse. 
1973, an animated film actually took the second biggest prize of the Cannes Film Festival, which is the biggest film festival in the world. The film was made by French-Czech filmmakers and was called Fantastic Planet. The film was about humans living on a strange planet dominated by giant humanoid aliens who consider them animals. I've seen it one time. It is crazy weird. Watership Down in 1978 was one of the last highlights of the 1970s before animation as an art form hit another major slump going into the 1980s. The 80s was a low point for not only U.S. television animation, but the movies as well. The failure of the Disney film The Black Cauldron in 1985 damn near bankrupted that studio. Japanese animation, however, was thriving. Anime was very popular with the home video market and direct-to-video movies. The biggest name to come out of this time was Hayao Miyazaki, with films like My Neighbor Totoro and Kiki's Delivery Service. His production company, Studio Ghibli, became popular not only in Japan, but internationally. We're doing a full deep dive into Miyazaki and his partners and Studio Ghibli next week. In the late 1980s, things started to look up a bit for the medium. Films like American Tale, which was produced by Amblin and distributed by Universal Pictures in 1986, became the highest grossing non-Disney animated film. The brain behind this and several other films, including The Land Before Time in 1988, which all the millennials know, was Don Bluth, a former Disney man. Also at this time, Robert Zemeckis' live-action-slash-animated hit, Who Framed Roger Rabbit in 1988, harked back to the quality and zany comedy of the golden age of cartoons with cameos of many of the superstars of that era, including Mickey, Minnie, Donald, Goofy, Betty Boop, Droopy, Woody Woodpecker, and of course Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig... Tweety and Sylvester all appearing within the film. The film won several Oscars and actually helped revive interest in theatrical feature animation as well as the classic cartoons that were contained within the film. After a couple of minor hits, Disney came back in a massive way with The Little Mermaid in 1989. This film would bring in the Disney renaissance which would last for the next decade with films like The Lion King, Beauty and the Beast, and Mulan. Little Mermaid was also the first film to use Computer Animation Production System, or CAPS, a program that implemented a digital ink and paint animation capability instead of doing everything on individual cells. CAPS was developed by Disney and Pixar. Pixar had been doing animated shorts for about a decade before they entered the main stage with Toy Story in 1995, the first fully computer-generated animated feature film. This would take over as the standard by the by the mid to late 2000s. Computer animation had been experimented with as far back as the 1940s, and there had certainly been examples of computer-generated animation before the mid-90s. The breakthroughs made technologically at this time with computer animation weren't used solely for animation, but also in films like Terminator 2 and Jurassic Park. Pixar would rise to prominence with films like Toy Story and A Bug's Life, with recent hits including Onward and Soul. We'll cover the 
the history of Pixar and their contributions to animation and film in a couple of weeks. Well, that brings us up to the modern day. If you were like me, you probably spent a decent chunk of your formative years watching animated films. In fact, you've probably heard of more of the films mentioned today than anything I talked about in my first two episodes. Animated films and the way they make us feel endure long after our childhood has escaped the recesses of our memories. We grow up with them, we watch them with our friends for nostalgia, and one day some of us will show them to our own children. Animation has come a long way from cave paintings to the likes of a computer-generated animated film. But their reason for existing has always remained the same, to tell our stories to each other. Buzz Lightyear to Star Command. Come in, Star Command. Star Command, come in. Do you read me? Why don't they answer? <gasps> My ship! Blast. This will take weeks to repair. Buzz Lightyear mission log, stardate 4072. My ship is run off course en route to Sector 12. I've crash-landed on a strange planet. The impact must have awoken me from hypersleep. Terrain seems a bit unstable. No readout yet if the air is breathable. And there seems to be no sign of intelligent life anywhere. Hello? Oh, yeah! Ah! Whoa! Hey, whoa, 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 whoa. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory. And if you have any questions, you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. Share it with all your friends. In order to keep making this podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, the history of Studio Ghibli and its founders. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.